Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and today I have a very special guest who comes to us by way of Vancouver, Canada. This is Mr. Scott H. Young. He is an autodidact. Now, if you're like me and you had to look that up, it really is a way to say someone who is a specialist in being self-taught. Among his many achievements that I find incredibly remarkable, he learned MIT's computer science program, the course requirements in a four-year degree, and he did it in less than 12 months. He taught himself to speak four languages in the space of a year. This is what you call self-improvement, and for most of us, it seems way beyond the range of anything that we could do. But what's so amazing about Scott is that he is not only uncanny in his abilities, but he knows how he got there. He's what we would call a conscious, competent, and he's also unselfish and wanted to share some of those things to to everyone. He is part of the group of people that are known as ultra learners. Uh, He is an author. He's a blogger. He gives wonderful presentations on YouTube and in other means. And he also understands what it means to work really hard, that this is not a case of somebody that is born and is able to just learn anything. They worked at it. They developed techniques. They went through difficulties to get there. But there have been many amazing historical examples of people from Ben Franklin, physicists, Richard Feynman, and others that have been inspirations in Scott's life, which is great. One of the things I appreciate is that he believes in directness and teaching hands-on instead of somebody just standing there and prattling on about theory. So drilling it to get through our weaknesses, learn how to get that retrieval, which is so great. So we're very, very excited about it. And at the end, we're going to talk about the, the book that has just literally come out yesterday based on when this is being broadcast. So we are so delighted to welcome you. Scott Young, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Oh, thank you so much. It's very flattering. Well, this is great fun. I am so fascinated. You are a a young person. You have already learned so many things. What are some of the significant uh, pivots or directional shifts from your early life that that sort of have led you to this point, creating this brilliant book and all the things you've done? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I I have always been a curious person. I've always been interested in learning. And so I think I have had definitely experiences from my early childhood, which were important for learning. Both my parents were elementary school teachers. So I think learning was always something that was instilled in me from an early age. But really what I talk about in the book and, and the kind of story that I had in the book was it was an exposure to an experience outside of the formal education system that really kind of got me on this, what I call this ultra learning path or looking at people who teach themselves hard skills often in kind of unusual ways. And so my experience actually happened when I was in university. So I was, had the opportunity to go on exchange for a year and live in France. And I was really excited to live abroad, but I was also excited because I wanted to learn French. And I was, you know, I got my book, I was going to study, I was going to practice. And then few months in, I'm finding that, you know, things aren't going as well as I'd hoped. I'm not doing great in my class. I'm sort of near the bottom of my particular class. I think I even got a D on my final French exam, which was a little bit unfortunate. I mean, the people who are getting good grades, they've been studying for years. And, you know, I was feeling kind of like, well, maybe the problem is just that 
learning a language takes years or decades of time. And I just didn't have that much time to learn. And so I was a bit discouraged. And I was talking to a friend from back home and he said, well, have you heard of this guy, Benny Lewis? And I was like, no, who's Benny Lewis? I've never heard of this guy before. And Benny Lewis has since become somewhat famous, but his project and his website was what he called Fluent in Three Months. So he had this goal of going to a new country and having very little experience, sometimes no experience, and trying to learn as much as possible in three months. And so his sort of self-declared challenge is that he wanted to be able to learn a language fluently in three months. And this was something that just sounded crazy to me because I'd been living in France for four months and I was nowhere near fluent. And everyone around me spoke to me in English, including my French friends. And so this just seemed like a pipe dream. But after kind of being that initial frustration and a little bit like, oh, that's just someone else. I can't do this. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should try to meet him. Maybe I should try to see what he's doing differently than what I'm doing. So I sent him an email and a train ride later, we were meeting face to face in Paris. And what I learned from that encounter wasn't that, you know, just that Benny had some trick for learning languages. And indeed, I don't have any tricks that you know, that you can't have heard of before. There's a lot of little tools, a lot of methods that you can use to learn better. But what I found was his difference is just his entire philosophy towards approaching learning projects like this. You see, while I was at home and I'm, you know, studying at home, hoping that one day I'll be ready to really start speaking French with people, Benny was fearless. He was just going up to people and speaking with them, even though he wasn't ready yet, often just armed with only a few sentences he learned from a phrasebook before. So this was really my kind of initiation experience into this world of what I call ultra learning or people who take on these aggressive learning projects. And the funny thing is, is that I had that experience learning French and I, I had those sort of ups and downs of trying really hard, but also finding it more difficult than I initially expected. And I, you know, as we mentioned in the biography, I, a couple of years later, I went with a friend and I decided to do things more the Benny Lewis way. And so we decided to take on a project I called the, the Year Without English, where we would travel to these countries. And the way we would learn the language is as soon as we got off the plane, we would only speak to each other and to people we met in the language we were trying to learn. And this sounds really scary and daunting, but having been through the experience of the other way of trying to learn a language where you're constantly surrounding yourself by people who speak in English, I can say that not only was this approach much more effective, we, we ended up learning these languages, I would say, better than I did after a year in France, even though we only spent three months in each country. But also, it was easier, too, because we set up our environment to foster speaking and, and practicing the language all the time. And so writing this book was trying to share some of these methods because very often I think people will unwittingly stumble upon a path to learning, which is unnecessarily long, unnecessarily frustrating, or doesn't get them to the destination they want. And so I wanted to share not only some stories, but some of the research we have on how to learn more effectively so that you can get better at things that matter in your life. Huh. What were the four, four countries and the four languages? Right. So we went to Spain to learn Spanish. That was our first one. Then we went to Brazil to learn Portuguese, uh, China to learn Mandarin Chinese, and South Korea to learn Korean. Whoa, that's phenomenal. <laughs> what are they, it's, it's full immersion, but not in a classroom. It's actually just diving in and being there. Yeah, yeah. We didn't actually take any formal classes. We did, um, we did use tutors when we were there. And I do highly recommend if you're going to attempt to learn a language, tutoring is, is probably one of the best things you can do. Um, but definitely the most important fact was just that we were practicing such a large amount of the time because we were using this 
no English rule. And I mean, a lot of people listening here might say, oh, wow, that sounds crazy. I can't possibly do something like that to learn a language. But there's always some version of it you can do. So one thing you can do is, you know, if you and your spouse want to learn Spanish for an upcoming trip to Mexico, you could just say, okay, you know, from the hours from 6 p.m. till 8 p.m., we're just going to speak in Spanish at home. And so this is a, an easier way that you can kind of take the same idea and apply it to the things that you want to learn. It's a brilliant idea. My wife is a native Portuguese speaker and has been trying mm-hmm. for 40 years to get me on that same program. So <laughs> this is a, a, an additional encouragement. Well, so that that sounds to some extent, well, that's a cool novelty and to have the ability to live in these countries and do that. But you describe yourself as an author and a learner, you know, mm-hmm. like a professional learner. What what <laughs> what led from there to to tackling Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Right, right. So this this was another project. So this actually happened in between my kind of two language learning experiences. But I had graduated from university. And again, this is after my sort of, you know, that formative encounter with Benny Lewis, where I think it wasn't so much that I got some very specific idea of, okay, this is how you learn everything. It was more just the concept of taking on learning challenges. I hadn't really seen anyone do that before. And as I mentioned, this is learning is something that that had been interesting to me for a while now. And so this was sort of, oh, you know, this is an option. This is some way that you can do things in the way that most people, you know, the only time they think of learning is often through classes or going to school or going to university. And so I had graduated from business school. And like a lot lot of people who spend a lot of time studying, I had a bit of regret almost over what I chose to study because I had kind of envisioned myself as being an entrepreneur. I imagined that I was going to write some, make some business online. And I had went into business school thinking, well, great, this is going to be the best thing possible for me to study. And then it was a couple of years of classes before I realized, well, hey, wait a minute. Actually, business school is mostly about how you can be a good little middle manager in a large company, not really how you can start your own. And so I was thinking after I graduated back to when I was a freshman and what I had considered studying as an alternative, which was computer science. So computer science, even though it's sort of on the surface, not that related to business, when you think about being an entrepreneur now, you think about people like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, you think about people who, you know, they know something about programming, they know how to make things. And and so I was thinking about going back to school, but that didn't seem super appealing. I didn't really want to spend another four years. I didn't want to take out loans. I didn't want to live in a dorm room while I was studying another degree. And so around this time, I stumbled upon a class that was taught by MIT and put online on their website, MIT Open Courseware for free. So this was a just the real MIT class that had the actual lectures, actual assignments, actual exams, but they had just sort of uploaded everything. So it was just kind of like, all right, here's the class, do whatever you want with it. And I went through the class and I found that, you know what, it was actually a lot better than a lot of the classes I'd paid money for to attend in school. It was, you know, these are the best lectures in the world, really high quality material. And so as I was going through this class, I was thinking, you know what, if you could try to do a class, maybe you could do something approximating a degree. So instead of just learning a class or two, what if you tried to get a kind of computer science education? And this idea really sort of consumed me for several months because I thought, well, I haven't heard of anyone doing this before. Why aren't people doing this? And it is it is difficult to do. I don't want to say that this is an easy project to do, not only just because you have to learn all the classes, but because piecing together a degree wasn't initially how MIT had uh, thought of their uh, open courseware. So a lot of it is looking up the actual curriculum list, trying to match things, making little substitutions. 
But this, this sort of evolved into a project that I called the MIT Challenge, which was to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum by trying to pass the final exams and do the programming projects. And as I was working on it, I also found that there's actually some ways that you can do things a little bit faster than you would in normal classes. So one of the examples that I like to draw on, which is a kind of obvious one, but if you are in lectures, you have to show up to the lecture at a certain time. It ends at a certain time. You have to watch the whole thing through. Whereas if you are taking a class online and you can download the video, you can start it whenever you're ready. And you can even watch it a little faster, maybe at 1.5 times the speed, maybe even two times the speed if the person is a slower talker. And this sounds kind of crazy, like how could you watch something at a faster speed? But people do this all the time. I've talked to a lot of people listening to podcasts that they listen to podcasts at 1.5 times the speed. Your mind gets used to it very easily. And of course, if it goes too fast, you don't understand something, you just pause and, and rewind and rewatch it again. And so it was in discovering little sort of speed ups like this that made me think that, well, you know what? using my kind of modified version of their curriculum that is just focused on the final exams and the programming projects, maybe it wouldn't just be something that I could do, you know, in the normal pace, but maybe I could do it a little bit faster. So that was also sort of my inspiration for trying this project. And, and I, I was successful at this sort of my initial goal of completing in that time frame. So that was about eight years ago. But yeah, that was definitely my first big project. That, that's amazing. I, it's partially amazing that you got MIT to go along with the idea. Well, the big thing about this is that you, anyone can do this. Like this yeah. is not something that requires permission from MIT. So going through this program, you don't get an MIT degree at the end, but you do get the knowledge that MIT teaches. And I think a lot of times people say, well, what's the point of doing it if you're not going to get a degree? But the interesting thing was, is after I finished this project, a few people started talking about it and I actually got you know, in touch with this recruiter from Microsoft and he wanted to set me up with an interview and a different person from a startup wanted me to join their team and other people were asking me, you know, could I work with them? Now, at the time, I was already sort of working as a writer, so I decided not to go down that path. But I think it's sort of, again, one of these misconceptions that the only reason to get school is to get a degree. Well, I think often what matters is having skills people find valuable. And so certainly if you can learn computer programming or you can learn languages or you can learn something, it doesn't really matter where you do it as long as you have the skills. Well, and the two examples you mentioned, Mr. Zuckerberg and Mr. Gates, join Mr. Jobs in that none of them had degrees. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so not against the college system out there, listeners, but uh, makes makes lots of sense. Um, that certainly puts you into the Autodidact Hall of Fame. Uh, I wonder, if he, does Guinness Book of World Records have an Autodidact category because I don't I don't know you know what it's it's funny though because the way I like to talk about in my book is self-directed learning rather than self-education and the reason why is because when you talk about projects like this it's easy to say oh well you just taught yourself this and, and you're just so smart because you taught yourself this but when I'm thinking about this MIT challenge I, I didn't teach myself this I had the material that MIT had uploaded online and so in many ways I feel like I had the same kinds of access to resources as when I was in school. If you're watching a lecture on a video or whether you're watching it in a classroom, the situation and experience is quite similar. I mean, there are differences from going to school and not going to school, but I think especially in the higher education sphere, I mean, I took lots of school classes in, in university where I never interacted one-on-one -on -one with the professor. So it's not to say that I think the real way of looking at it is that most of the learning that we do has to occur inside of our own head. So whether or not you are doing that inside of a classroom or at home, the difference isn't so important. What matters is the attitude that you take towards it and the approach that you take. 
I love it. Well, it's the attitude, but it's also the will, the desire, and then the method. So you had all three of those. <laughs> so I think that's fantastic. Um, now, here's a question you've probably been asked, Scott. Are, are you are you a genius? Well, this is one of the questions that I talk about in the book. Now, I certainly don't think that I'm a genius. I don't think that, for instance, I don't think that I'm much smarter than the typical MIT student. So I don't think that my project is that's, that's that, pretty uh, smart. <laughs> but I don't think, for instance, that my, the reason that I was able to do this project in 12 months is because I'm so much smarter than all the MIT students who are doing it over at four years. Or I don't think that the reason we did this language learning project, so I did it with a friend, is because we're so good at languages. Um, I think rather it is because of a difference in method. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't differences in intelligence and talent. You might go into the same class and you might have a friend who whizzes through the class and you have to really work hard. And that's not to say that, well, you're just doing it wrong and he's doing it right. It might be that there's a difference in ability. But the way that I like to think of it is that we focus so much on this difference in ability because our view of education and learning is typically very narrow. Everyone takes the same class, goes through it the same way. And so if you're at the top, that means you're smart. If you're at the bottom, it means you're dumb. And the way I like to think about it is the real world, there is a huge, huge variety of ways of learning things. And so often if you find a way that works for you, you can accomplish goals that were previously impossible for you, even though you're no smarter now than you were before. And so my own experience learning languages, I think is a testament to that because I feel like I learned more Spanish in three months than I did in a year in France. And I was working hard in both of them. And I was just as smart in both of them, but in one of them, I had the right method. So for me, I think that focusing too much on talent can be a little bit of a red herring because it focuses on the things you can't control, whereas method and your attitude and these kinds of things are very much under your control. And so that's what I try to talk about in my book, not to dismiss talent, but just to put it aside temporarily so we can focus on something you can actually change. Well, I think that message is vastly encouraging as well. Because if people just depend on their natural talent, then they've already got a ceiling and a lid. And, and you're Definitely. saying, oh, there's workarounds and you can, you can move forward regardless yeah. of the level of ability. And there's also evidence that if you think too much in terms of your own talent, that itself can be a handicap, even if you're quite smart. Because if you're quite smart and that's your self-conception, that you just succeed in things because of your raw intelligence – then you start doing something where you're not as good in the beginning and that can kind of shatter that identity. And so you pull away from it. So if you're really good at, you know, math and science, and then you try to learn a language and, oh, wow, that was too hard. Then you just tell yourself, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to stay away from that because this harms my self-conception. And so what I think is the right way to think about it is honestly, learning is always a process of being bad at things, of being kind of lousy at them. And so the more you can embrace that, and instead of having the self-conception of, well, I'm going to succeed at this because I'm so smart. You know, you know what? I'm going to be okay with being bad at this. I'm not going to let that discourage me is a much better attitude to adopt. I, think. Hmm. I love that. That's so right. Uh, speaking of discouragements, have, have you hit some brick walls along the way? You're going around the corner, oh, going great, boom, and you don't know what absolutely. you're going to do. What are, what are some approaches that work there? Absolutely. So, I mean, every project that I've undertaken has had obstacles that I wasn't anticipating and things that were difficult and things that made things more frustrating. I, I spoke about one about my experience in France and it was a big 
a big sort of light bulb moment for me because I realized the problem wasn't that, you know, I wasn't good at learning French or I wasn't acquiring vocabulary in the right way. The problem was I just wasn't spending enough time practicing French. As I said, most of the people around me spoke to me in English. And so this was another example of, okay, you have to create a habit of speaking to people in a particular language. And the problem isn't that you don't speak it well enough. That isn't, it's not that you're not fluent. I was certainly not fluent in any of the countries that we went to before we arrived. But that if you go to these places and you start to say, well, I'm only going to speak to you if it's comfortable and easy, then you start speaking to people in English and you don't get past it. And so there's lots of these little moments in your projects or maybe your ultra learning projects where you're going to get stuck or you're going to face some obstacle that you're not sure how to get past. So one of these I can remember is I did a class um, in the MIT challenge and a lot of the classes had lectures. Some of the classes didn't have lectures, but they had a textbook. So, I mean, it's usually more fun to watch a lecture than read a textbook, but you can still get someone explaining the material to you. But I remember one of the required classes was a class called uh, computation structures. And so this class was sort of the bridge between engineering and computer science. So it was giving a little like simulator that used like little wires and circuits. How could you construct a computer out of it? And this was a hard class because the only material that they had teaching the class was a slideshow. There wasn't a textbook. There weren't lectures. It was just a slideshow that had a few symbols and working with things. And luckily, what they had to teach you the materials, they had this program that you could use that would allow you to work through the, uh, like the actual, you know, set up connections, and it would tell you whether or not your, your computer worked properly and this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so this was a difficult class, because often the instructions were kind of cryptic, but I still had to figure out how the, the class worked. And so in these situations, one of the techniques I find really helpful is what I call uh, the Feynman technique. So the Feynman technique is inspired by my personal hero, Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winning physicist and iconoclast. And basically, the approach that you take there is that whenever there's something that's too confusing for you, you don't understand it, you take a piece of paper out and you write at the top understanding X. So it's whatever the thing you don't understand is. And then you try to explain it to yourself as if you were teaching someone else. So you write out an explanation as if it were going to be your notes for delivering a lecture on the topic. And this does a couple things. So the first thing is it just gets your ideas in order. So sometimes an idea that seemed really confusing, once you start writing it down, suddenly it doesn't seem so confusing anymore. You're like, oh, okay, actually, I get this because I'm writing it down and I'm understanding it. However, sometimes you do that, you do hit a wall, you hit a roadblock, and you're like, okay, this is the part that I don't understand. And that's actually super valuable, because often our confusions are just vague and amorphous. We don't actually know what we don't understand about something. And so I, I, one of the other people I was having a conversation with about this book uh, mentioned to me that, you know, it's like that kid in the class that says, I don't get it. And you're like, well, what, what don't you get? Everything. I don't get everything. <laughs> it's really not valuable as a question to ask, because you're just, well, do you want me to do the whole lecture over again? I don't know, right? And so the Feynman technique is really valuable because it lasers you in on the points you don't understand. So instead of saying, I don't get it, it's, I don't get why in step four you did this. That doesn't make sense to me. And then now you are armed with a question. So you can go to a teacher or a colleague or a peer or even just a book and just go back to the section where they're talking about step four and really read it slowly and be like, oh, okay, that's why they're doing this. And so using techniques like this were really important for my uh, MIT challenge project because you know computer science and advanced mathematics are often quite confusing and when you don't have people around you who are can you know patiently explain things to you you have to learn how to teach yourself and so 
this is a technique that um, since I first talked about it about 10 years ago, uh, a lot of people have said that they found it very helpful in their career or in their studies. Oh, I think it's phenomenal, very practical and, and workable advice. I love it. And in some ways, the, the language challenge, those four languages in a year, and then the MIT challenge were different because in the one sense, you were immersed with people that were all around you speaking that. With MIT, yeah. most of it was either online or, as you put it, sometimes just a slideshow. And you yeah. weren't surrounded by people that you could necessarily grab and say, talk to me in this language. Mm-hmm. That's very so I think, diversified. Yeah. One thing I would say is is an important thing is that the, the important thing and the reason that immersion works, let's say, for learning a language is because you're actually using the language. So you're actually having the words come out of your mouth and they're hitting other people's ears and they're saying other words and you're having that conversation. And I think the reason that a lot of people struggle in language classes is they spend most of the language class doing some homework exercises passively memorizing vocabulary, maybe sitting and listening to a teacher, but they're not actually engaged in using it. And so in some ways, the MIT challenge project I did was a lot like the language learning thing. I wasn't interacting with other people so much, but I was interacting with problem sets that had solutions. So I spent most of my time in that year doing problems either with pencil or paper or with a computer to do the programming assignments. And so I think there were definitely drawbacks of learning that particular challenge. I think that there's, if you wanted to learn programming and you wanted to do it in a more social environment, that would certainly help. I have one friend who recently started learning programming in his late thirties. And he said, what really helped him was he was doing it on a live stream and he had other people who were kind of coming in and pointing out, you know, he could ask them questions like, Oh wait, what, how do I get this to work? And they're saying, Oh, okay, you need to do this. And so working in teams or in groups and, and learning is definitely a good thing. I don't want to say that uh, learning in isolation is, is always best, but you have to learn in the way that your environment allows you to learn and you have to make do with the kind of situations that you're faced with. So for whatever situation you're in, I think there's a learning uh, path that you can take that will get you to the destination you want. No, I think it's fantastic, Scott. I, I get the sense that you have a uh, uh, no, no complacency. Let's put it that way. You don't seem like the kind of person that's going to say, okay, I've now done the MIT challenge and I've written a book and I've learned these languages. I'm done. Uh, how do you, how do you keep your edge and keep yourself motivated and looking what's, what's your next challenge? So, you know what, it's a really funny thing because in the process of researching this book, we've talked a lot about my projects, but really I, it was so inspiring doing the research for this book to meet people who've done projects that just blow mine out of the water. People like Eric Barone, who spent five years mastering art, programming, uh, video game, storytelling, design, everything to make a video game that went on to sell tens of millions of copies. Or people like Tristan Montebello, who over seven months went from having almost no public speaking experience to being a finalist for the Toastmasters World Championship of Public Speaking. And so some of these really dramatic stories, I got to talk with these people. And one of the things that they shared with me, so this is, in this case, this is Tristan, the person who did the public speaking. He said to me, you know what, it wasn't so much that learning this and doing it in this particular way, this ultra learning way, that it it was so great because I learned this public speaking, although that was definitely very exciting for him. But rather, it was that it opened him up to this possibility of all these things that he could learn, that he could get good at, that he had previously had his mind closed off to before. And so my feeling is that it's not so much that I have to really push myself outside of complacency and that I have to like goad myself and whip myself in order to, to learn, but having had these experiences, I feel like the world starts to open up to you. And so if you struggle learning a language for five years in school and you don't feel like you're very good at speaking it, 
well, no wonder the prospect of learning, you know, a third or fourth or seventh language doesn't seem that exciting. But if you've had this immersive experience and you know over a short period of time going from, okay, it's a struggle, but I can get through it to, oh, I'm actually socializing with people. I'm actually having friends. I'm actually having all these rewarding experiences. Then now all of a sudden the idea of traveling to learn languages opens up in front of you. And similarly, I found doing the MIT challenge, the feeling I had was not just that this was challenging and, and difficult, but also, you know, what other subjects and topics that I thought, oh, well, I'd have to spend a dozen years at school to, to be able to learn that and talk about it and think about it clearly. Um, what other subjects could I learn that I'd, I'd kind of close my mind off to before? So for me, the real thing about ultra learning is that once you get into it, it's not just something painful and hard and difficult, but it's really exciting that you can do a lot of things that maybe you, you previously had thought were out of your reach. Mm -hmm. Well, I can sense that excitement that you have, Scott. I think it's fantastic. Um, Thank you. Thank you. You know, you, you have achieved many things and you will achieve many more. What, what from a words of encouragement standpoint, would you share with somebody that in their life journey just feels like they're stuck and that they, yeah they can't get moving again? What, what would be your insights? Well, one of the things I feel is that there's what I call a confidence spiral. So the confidence spiral is the idea that when you are successful with something in life, that means that from that reference point, when you are predicting, okay, I'm going to do this new goal, this new project, that I will be successful at that as well. And part of the problem is that there's a bit of a catch-22 because one of the theories of motivation is what's called an expectancy theory of motivation, which basically says that if you expect to be successful at something, you will be more likely to do it. If you expect it to not be successful, your brain is automatically going to say, ah, don't waste your time with that. And the problem is, again, as you know, that your own motivation levels often determine the success that you experience. So if you are not motivated to finish a goal and you don't finish it, as a result, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the sort of converse of that is that if you have success and you start building the spiral in the positive direction, you can tackle more and more ambitious things because you have this track record, this reference that, well, of course I'll be successful. This I've been successful at everything else. And so I think of super successful people, people like Elon Musk or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who just, they've just basically been successful at everything their entire life that they have these extreme ambitions. Like Elon Musk wants to go to Mars because, well, why shouldn't he go to Mars? I mean, he's every company he's founded has been successful. He's run huge companies at the same time. And so I think it's easy to look at someone like that and just think they're just a, an exceptional person. And, and certainly there's an element of that that's true. But also part of it, I think, is this confidence spiral. And so the problem when you feel stuck is that you're often in the opposite. You're in a negative sort of unmotivating spiral that, well, your last projects to try to improve yourself failed. And because they failed, you're not able to commit or motivate yourself to a new project. And so I see that a lot of the way out of this is kind of bootstrapping your confidence by taking on a small project that's very specific and very concrete and is something that you can achieve and accomplish. And so I really liked when I started, I liked doing, um, this was, you know, about 15 years ago, I started with 30 day trials, just trying to do a new habit or a new learning project or something just for 30 days. And 30 days is a short enough period of time that if you are motivated and you can stick to it, you can get through 30 days. But the other thing is that once you've done one 30-day trial, you can do another one. You can do another one. And then maybe you can do a project that takes three months. Or maybe you can do a project that takes a year. Or maybe you can do a project that will take a year and also be really intensive and really difficult. And so I think no matter where you are in life, there's always some project that you could tackle right now that could give you the confidence to take on bigger things. And so you just bite off those chunks and 
work on it. And especially if you're using the right methods, whether it's learning or habits or whatever, um, I think that you will have more success and you can get on that right track of feeling better about yourself and about your projects you're going to take on. That's fantastic. Or as somebody once said, even slow motion is better than no motion. Absolutely. Just get a little bit going. Well, we are very delighted, uh, Scott, that Ultra Learning is now on the market, hot off the presses. How can people find this? So the best way is to go to my website. You go to scotthyoung.com and I have links to the book in all the major retailers. Um, of course, the book is published by Harper uh, Business, so you can get it um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books online and hopefully in some bookstores as well, they'll be stocking it. And so, yeah, if you do decide to get the book and you decide to take on your own learning project, I would be really excited to hear about it. I always like hearing about the projects people undertake. So don't hesitate. You can go to my website and contact me and, and send me a little message about your own ultra learning projects. I'd love to hear about it. Well, it sounds fantastic. Well, you have been so open and so giving and we very much appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.